0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show is another Cold War developing between China and the rest of the world. What will the new relationship look like? The COVID Alert app has been out for a couple of weeks now. Have you downloaded it? And we all know how COVID-19 has affected us in the short term. What will it mean for how we work moving forward? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML.
1: I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Loving wearing my mask in hot weather and trying to figure out how I can convert it into a swimsuit in a pitch. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson.
0: Hey, I don't think you got that in the right position there. Hey, you're. uh, Wait a sec. Come here. Let me straighten that out for you. It's not supposed to go down there. kids nowadays all right uh serious uh conditions continue between the united states and china and there's uh some chatter that a cold war could be developing there's a new commentary on the global site by matthew fisher and is entitled a new cold war is developing between china and the u.s and to talk more about all of this is matthew fisher fellow canadian global affairs institute and contributor to global news he is with us now matthew thank you for the time hope you're doing well
2: I'm doing very well. I was just saying to your producer that I've been watching my bird feeder.
0: There you go. Well, You know what? Getting back to nature is something that's good to do when you're in the middle of a pandemic, isn't it?
2: It is, uh, and it has a certain calming effect.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, Obviously not a calming effect what's going on between China and the United States. Uh, The headline today is a Cold War developing. Uh, Is this between China and the United States, or is this between China and the rest of the world?
2: That is absolutely uh, the better and bigger question, Scott. And the answer is yes, I think so. It's uh, really hard to keep a list of all the countries that China has offended over the past few months and the past few weeks it's a, it's a very long list and china has very few friends iran is one of them uh they've just signed a huge deal with iran and they still deal with russia and north korea and cambodia and uh layoff uh but that's about it in terms of friends and of course several of those countries on that list are pariah states and in a way china is becoming a pariah state itself because it has very active disputes with South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Brunei, Vietnam, India, Australia, the United States. Uh, I mean, it's picked a lot of enemies and, of course, Canada as well.
0: Are, is this broader discussion that you're, you've uh, entered into with this column, is that being overshadowed by the rhetoric and, and the battle between the United States and China? I mean, is the rest of the world now uniting uh, around this cause, uh, even though it might be Donald Trump who may be leading the, the charge here?
2: Well, I think there is a coalescing of sorts uh, uh, among a lot of nations, against China, not necessarily in terms of the military, although that is an aspect of it, but also uh, how to uh, use trade uh, against China and economic sanctions and maybe limit the movement of some Chinese people. Uh, For some countries, it is a question of holding your nose and going along with Donald Trump. Uh, where, Where I would caution there regarding the United States is that it is not only Donald Trump, The U.S. position is actually one of the very few that is bipartisan. The Democrats hold the same position. Joe Biden and Donald Trump regard China in the same way. So it's a little bit different than the other things which pits Trump against an awful lot of people within the United States. And this one, there's there's considerable unanimity uh, that China uh, is taking advantage of the coronavirus and the world's attention to that. Uh, to make some territorial grabs and to improve its military, train its military to perhaps invade Taiwan um, and uh, impose what they've done with Hong Kong. A lot of what China is doing, you could see with the coronavirus, even more actions against the Uyghur Muslim minority in Western China and the action in Hong Kong and all the action now military, a lot of it in the South China Sea. It's all of a piece. Uh, China is on the march, and uh, we don't pay that much attention to it in Canada, but at some point we're probably going to have to.
0: Why are we not paying attention to it in Canada, despite all of our allies having the same view?
2: Well, the convenient excuse and the one the government would use is that we must tread very softly because uh, they hold the two Michaels, uh in uh, prison there and because of the dispute about the extradition of uh, the huawei heiress uh, ms meng uh, to the united states but in fact china's um, quiet uh, about what uh, china has been up to goes back several years the trudeau government long before this happened was uh, trying to get a trade deal with china And so was uh, not nearly as critical of China as they should have been a couple of years ago. Uh, And so today it's convenient to use this excuse of the two Michaels. But it's actually a continuation of a policy where somehow we still hope that uh, we'll get some manna from heaven in the form of uh, a great trading relationship with China. Uh, um, We have a trading relationship with China. It is important to us, but it is quite clear Uh, that uh, China doesn't respect or think much of Canada. And so maybe we should put our apples in a a few other baskets because there are many options out in the Indo-Pacific, more trade with Japan, Vietnam, uh, India, certainly Singapore, uh, Taiwan. Uh, We have other options. Uh, We don't have to just dream of having China alone as our great friend and ally. That is not working out.
0: And at the end of the day, Matthew, will there not always, and and I do not mean this to sound as disrespectful as it may, but will there not always be a Two Michaels? For example, even if the Two Michaels are brought home, and hopefully safely and, and, and soon, there's still an awful lot of Canadians there, especially in Hong Kong, that can be plucked off the street. So the Two Michaels are the issue today, but will there not always be the threat of the Two Michaels in some form?
2: Well... It begs the question how many Canadians will return as tourists to Hong Kong to say nothing of the 300,000 plus uh, Canadian citizens uh, who live in Hong Kong. These are very, very big uh, questions uh, that you ask. And uh, what we need is a, a frank reappraisal of our China policy, where it has succeeded, not many places but a bit on trade and where it has failed and where we wish to take it from here and what we have in fact is no discussion about this at all no discussion about uh, really about how our universities are terribly exposed to chinese money and uh, espionage within our uh, own universities uh nothing about how china harasses its own citizens who have settled in Canada. And no discussion, although there's big discussion about it in Australia and New Zealand, about how China has infiltrated the Canadian political process and have speako- people, elected officials speaking for China, uh, who have very dubious connections with China. CSIS has been looking at that, our spy agency. But uh, I think maybe the time is coming for uh, for a formal look at what China is up to within Canada because uh, uh, they've taken a lot from us some people think they destroyed Nortel the big telecoms company um, and they've uh, intellectual property ip theft is big everywhere with china but here the other issue i'd say is that when we look at the your original thing about them taking more canadians canadians don't understand that china has done this with swedes it's done it with japanese people Uh, citizens before. And we are not the first nation, nor will we be the last, where our citizens are kidnapped for political reasons. And it's really quite outrageous today that there is a big government that goes out and uh, kidnaps people uh, for its diplomatic purposes. Uh, It's just not the way the world has operated for a very long time.
0: So what do you think the tipping point will be to get Canada's or perhaps the Prime Minister's office attention on this? Because uh, otherwise, this is dragging out till the Huawei CFO case comes to a close, and we've heard that that could take years. Same thing with the two Michaels. So what is the tipping point here that will change Canada's view of China?
2: Well, I think uh, the Canadian public have already changed their view, Scott. If you look at the polls by uh, uh, Ipsos, and by angus mm-hmm. reed ipsos did a poll for global on this uh, it's quite clear that uh, most canadians majority have deep reservations about our existing ties with china they want us to have uh, less of a relationship i believe the canadian government is way behind the public in being skeptical about china and because they want to get reelected at some point that will be the tipping point when they realize this is costing them in votes, famously, foreign policy doesn't matter in Canadian elections, but maybe this time China will influence some votes. And I think that is where the tipping point, if you like, comes. Uh, You're quite right. There could be more kidnappings. They've used beef and pork and canola to try to control us. They may now not allow their students to come to Canada Uh, They're a big income earner for Canadian universities. Uh, Tourists, they could pull the plug on all those tourists and Western Canadian tourism especially, but also in the Golden Horseshoe that you are part of with Hamilton and Toronto. A lot of uh, tourists go down there and go to Niagara Falls, which is near you. And uh, uh, those are ways that China will get at us and maybe provoke us to respond a little more strongly than we have, or in my view, uh, we should respond a lot more strongly. And not with military stuff. Forget it. We can help a little bit with the military stuff. But we, we as a government, have decided for a very long time that we don't do that and that the United States should fight and die for Canada. And I don't see that changing very soon. Uh, but there are other ways that we can help and other ways we're going to be drawn into helping by our Western allies. And remember, we talk multilateralism all the time in Canada. Well, this is an issue that cries out for multilateralism.
0: Uh, Is this a government that has a wait-and-see attitude? You know, I can think of the Huawei situation where, you know, the Five Eyes said, you know, we should not be allowing Huawei to... Uh, be the backbone of our 5g network the uk has already turned around on their decision to let them into a part of it and said no we don't want any of that and now we're seeing the canadian you know two of the three top canadian providers say we're well, we're not going to go with 5G, uh, their 5g we're going to use the other uh, competitors even though uh, it is a bit more expensive which in the end um, you know the prime minister does not have to make the decision industry has made that decision for him is that what he's waiting for here
2: uh... I don't know what the prime minister is waiting for. Uh, We do know that his idea of foreign policy really boils down to we are going to be world leaders on the environment when, in fact, nothing suggests we are a world leader on the environment. And also in terms of diversity and, um, and gender balance issues like this, those issues, as important as they are to many Canadians, don't really register in the world. That's one of the reasons we were repudiated by the United Nations when we sought the Security Council seat. And that is why we really need a pragmatic look at where we are in the world and, uh, and what we want to do in the world, what our real interests are, and then have a policy that reflects that. And that's where China comes in, because almost everything, about the future for Canada involves China and, as always, the United States. And at some point, we're going to be asked, we're already probably being asked, who do we want to sleep with, China or the United States? And I think most Canadians, despite Donald Trump, would rather be in with the United States uh, than with China.
0: Uh, we we certainly know the issues that have that have come up around the canola industry and how that has affected farmers and and uh, China once a, a massive consumer of uh, of this product now has banned this and obviously putting uh, Canadian farmers uh, in peril. That being said, we're finding out and I've read stories where the product is getting there through other routes as well, which, which you were talking about, you know, the, the surrounding countries around China. So at the end of the day, if China needs Canadian canola, they're going to find a way to get it, are they not?
2: Well, they've done this also with things like barley, lobster. When China does something against one country, Other countries that are friendly to the first country step in. When uh, the Americans had a dispute with China and China uh, sanctioned their lobsters, the Canadian lobster industry stepped up. Uh, On barley, Canada is offering more barley to China now because they've cut off Australian barley because Australia had the temerity to say, let's have an investigation of the causes of the coronavirus. And did China cover up? The, uh, the lethal effects of this disease and the enormity of the challenge we would face for several months, a crucial month in January and February of this year. Uh, so what we need is for all of the West, Canada included, to uh, maybe form OPEC-like cartels on food. Uh, when you get down to it, China needs the West more than we need them. They sell us electronic products and things like that, finished products. Uh, But we can find other sources ourselves, but it's cheaper for us to buy them from China. What China needs from us is natural resources and food. And uh, that makes them much more vulnerable because our spending really is uh, it's discretionary spending. Do you want to spend it or not? And with China, it is they need these things. So if somehow uh, maybe not a formal thing like OPEC, But if there could be an agreement among the few countries that do supply uh, agriculture products because they have big surpluses, Canada and Australia, the United States being the biggest, uh, then China wouldn't be able to play us off against each other in this way. Mm. They're threatening Canadian lobster right now. The United States probably will try to step in and take that on salmon. Norway has stepped in uh, on trade with that. And Canada and Norway are big exporters of salmon. Uh, We have to not play the Chinese game. We have to find a way to play our own game, Scott.
0: Matthew Fisher has been with us. The commentary, a new Cold War is developing between China and the United States. You can find that on our website. Matthew, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Before I went on holiday, we talked a lot about the COVID-19 app and, uh, its development, its security and privacy issues and such. And most importantly, will people even download it? Uh, it has, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has changed, uh, obviously a lot of things. And this, the app is going to help us. I guess uh, further figure out what the new normal is and uh, uh, is it working is it not let's bring in Carmi Levy tech analyst he is with us now Carmi thanks for the time hope you're doing well
3: oh great to be here Scott thanks for having me on we've been safe here so so far
0: so good there you go so uh, give us an update on this app how long have we had this available now And, and are people downloading this
3: well, it's been about uh, a week and a half, so it went live on Friday, the 31st of July. But a few weeks late, originally, we were expecting it at the beginning of July. Uh, but they ran into some snags, which is normal with code, with software. That's always the deal, um, especially one like this, which will be deployed nationally. You've got a lot of chefs with their fingers in the pie. So they needed to work out some last-minute glitches, and it hit Ontario the 31st. Um, it is available for download across the country, but only in Ontario is it actually connected to anything. In other words, if you download it in Manitoba or anywhere outside of our borders, it'll install properly on your device. You can set it to your province because it asks you where you live, but then uh, nothing. you can't actually do anything with it. It isn't actually communicating with anything. The next batch of provinces to go live will be the Atlantic provinces. They haven't put a date on that one yet. And the goal is eventually to have this thing available across the country, probably within the next couple of months. Um, we got some early data about two days after it went live. We heard that about 1.2 million Canadians had downloaded it, which is not bad, actually. You no, know.
0: that's pretty good. Those are pretty good numbers. Are they not Carmi? Or I guess in the grand scheme of things, no. What are your thoughts?
3: Well, you know, I mean, I'm, I obviously, I, I always want the numbers to be as big as possible, but. Uh, you know, for any app, I mean, any app developer, if they got numbers like that, they'd be elated. Um, and anything better than zero at this point is good. Uh, and I think the government, both uh, the Ontario government and the federal government, need to be doing a better job of marketing this thing. Um, and they have committed more money to it. We know that we're going to be seeing even more ads for it in the days ahead. But up until now, they really haven't pushed uh, the marketing engine as hard as they could. So for... You know, for initial take-up, that's actually an encouraging start, but obviously there's a pretty long road ahead. Um, They didn't say whether these folks were all in Ontario or whether they're from outside of Canada. If it's just Ontario, and I would expect the lion's share would be, Um, that's actually a pretty high percentage of Ontario's population. It's about 65 or a little bit more than 6.5%, if you assume that about a million of those downloads would have been in in Ontario proper. So, you know, it's a good start, but we still have to really, like, we can't afford to let up here. We want those numbers. We want uh, nationally, when all is said and done, uh, ideally, it should be above 50% uh, take up to make it really effective. Um, the closer we can get it to 100%, the better, and uh, we have some work to do.
0: Um, any sort of feedback uh, from users who have downloaded it? Any situations of where it is engaged and, and, and actually helped?
3: We haven't seen any official reports on on positives. So, in other words cases where somebody was uh, in a public place and did receive the positive notification, the uh, uh, COVID alert, uh, like the homepage, uh, and the the respective uh, Ontario and federal governments are not releasing information like that. So we don't have anything that is kind of broad-based. I am seeing some anecdotal uh, instances of people sharing on social media that uh, they did get a positive uh, notification and, and they did contact public health. So We do know that out in the field, it does work in some cases, and obviously the frequency of those hits is going to go up the more and more people use it. For example, imagine if you're walking through uh, a grocery store, uh, if no one else is using the app, there's no chance of you ever getting a positive hit. Mm. But the more and more people who use it, the more relevant that data becomes and the more likely it is that we'll get information that we need through that app. So trending in the right direction, but not quite there yet.
0: So, what do you think the major concern is for Canadians? Is it privacy?
3: Yeah, it remains privacy, and that's sort of the thing that I'm running into in conversations that I'm having every time I bring it up, the... The folks who understand the least of it, of how it works, are the ones who are most likely to complain about privacy, uh, claim that it's a government conspiracy, which, of course, it is not. Uh, I find it ironic that those who complain the loudest are the ones who are usually doing it on Facebook, which, of course, as we know in the background, is probably one of the most invasive apps in terms of privacy. It's collecting the most. So the truth of the matter is this app, COVID Alert, was designed from the start to minimize the exposure of our private information. It doesn't uh, access anything on our phone but Bluetooth, only Bluetooth, nothing else. So no GPS, doesn't know our location, does not know, doesn't access our contacts, doesn't access camera uh, or microphone or anything like that, schedule, you name it. There is no sort of cross-referencing, cross-interplay between the app and the services that run on our phone. So, And the only thing that it shares is a randomly generated, anonymous, encrypted on number uh, that's unique to you. So and that's the only way that you know that you've come in contact with someone by these numbers being shared. And even then, you have to allow that information to be shared. The app is always asking you, are you sure you want you want to proceed with sharing? Do you want to move to the next level? It never assumes that it has the right to share. It's asking you for permission at every step. So, you know, the privacy argument just doesn't fly considering All of the other apps that we have on our phone and all of the pains that they've taken to develop an app that is really secure and, quite frankly, is designed to save lives. And as Canadians, it it behooves us all to install it, recognize that the government isn't standing over our shoulders and recognize that this is a critical tool to keep us safe until a vaccine is
0: available you bring up the comparison uh carmy to facebook uh and a lot are concerned about the privacy but the privacy on facebook is nothing compared to what it is with this app is that accurate i've read that
3: very much so you know like we've already the horse is already out of the barn so far as privacy is concerned you know we're 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 so concerned about COVID alert and privacy and we should be having this conversation but we also need to recognize that facebook is far more aggressive in terms of the data that it collects from us uh, and what it's doing with it it's sharing it in the background it's facebook is is uh, is is selling this information to third parties who then use it to, to target ads against us so we're already part of this very not private infrastructure and it's all designed for marketing for advertising for selling Um, and it's certainly not in our best interest. So we're already living in a very non-private digital world, and to sort of claim that by installing COVID Alert we suddenly make ourselves less private is kind of a laugh. Uh, and, And I think we need to really give our heads a shake and sort of recognize that, We haven't been paying enough attention, and you and I have had this conversation many times, we haven't been paying enough attention as individuals to digital privacy over the years. So to raise it now around COVID Alert and blame COVID Alert for us suddenly being exposed through our mobile devices is highly disingenuous. It will not make us any less private or any less secure than we already are. And in in pretty much every respect, we've already done that to ourselves. COVID Alert is not going to expose us even more, but it might save our lives.
0: We remember with the uh, introduction of the Amber Alert problem or uh, Amber Alert program and, uh, and all of the glitches that, that appeared at the beginning of that. Uh, are we to expect the same sort of thing here? Is, are these no. in any way similar?
3: Um, well, I mean, they are. I mean, anytime the government uh, involves itself in developing a technology that keeps uh, society safe, you know, I think it's reasonable for us to ask, well, are are they going to figure out the glitches? Should government even be in the business of technology at all? And certainly with that, kind of the, uh, the oopsies we've seen around the Amber Alert system, there is a ways to go there. They are running into some issues and they have to kind of tweak it and tune it and figure it out over time until it works to a, a level that everyone's happy with. Um, and I think the same logic applies to COVID alert, although now that we are, you know, a, a, almost a couple of weeks in, I'm actually pretty impressed with the, the, the level of non-glitchiness that I'm seeing so far. It has been a fairly smooth rollout so far. There have been a few um, issues here and there. Uh, there were a number of reports of early false positives uh, that were corrected by an early update, an automatic update. Um, but for the most part, compared to how it could have gone, it could have been an absolute disaster, uh, like in other countries, but here uh, it's gone fairly well. And so I think we can expect a few little boo-boos and, uh, and you know, flies and ointment here and there. But for the most part, um, I say kudos to the federal government and government of Ontario so far for a relatively smooth roll-up, roll-up that's gone as well as we could expect of something on this scale.
0: How do we get it? Speaking of education, maybe this should be the first uh, question. How do we get this? How does any user obtain this?
3: Real simple. It's available in the, uh, the respective app stores for both Android as well as iOS. So if you have an iPhone or Android powered device, you go to the, the app store and you just type COVID alert, uh, and it will take you right to the page and then you hit the download button. And of course, uh, the federal government, uh, is also sending out, uh, there's, the, you know, uh, there was a text based campaign with a li- with links in it. Uh, I would expect there will be more text messages in concert with our telecommunications company. So watch your phone Um, and probably also email and you'll start seeing ads on websites as well where you just, uh, you know, click or tap on the ad and it'll take you to the the particular page. Um, But just, you know, search for COVID alert, hit up the app store and it's there and it's free and it takes about 22 seconds for it to install.
0: Carmi Levy has been with us, tech analyst, talking about the COVID Alert app and uh, its rollout and how it is doing so far and encouraging everybody to download it and participate. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You as well. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked about this many times on the show, and it's funny, as we are sitting in, what is this now, week number 22, man, of the Scott Thompson Home Show. Uh, I remember when my boss sent me a note and said, you know, by the end of the week, we want everybody out. And I think by Wednesday or Thursday of spring break was my first at-home show. And I thought, well, you know, it happened for a month or so, and it's be all done, and we'll move on. And here we are, 22 weeks later. And often at the early stages of this pandemic, we talked about what when life will get back to normal. And then as the pandemic progressed, we realized I think uh, February of 2020 was the last normal you will see of the pre-COVID-19 era. Post-COVID-19 will be anything but the same. Uh, The new normal, what is that? We've talked about it. This virtually affects everyone every industry, every walk of life in some way. It's changed how we work. It's changed our workplace culture. Uh, maybe some for the better, maybe not. Let's bring in Erica Pimentel, a PhD candidate in accounting, Concordia public scholar, Concordia University, and is with us now. Erica, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, you know, I guess 30%, roughly 30% of uh, Canadians are working from home. Will that continue? or Will some just stay there?
1: Yeah, so uh, based on my research, many companies are planning on making this permanent. Now, not permanent that we're all going to be working from home forever. I think we all agree that would be awful. But a lot of companies are moving towards giving folks the opportunity to work at least part-time from home. And what's a big change is, People can work from home part-time at all levels. I mean, I'm a CPA. Before I did my PhD, I was working at a large accounting firm for many years. And working from home was something you earned. And you had to be seen as someone who had the competence, the experience that could be trusted enough to work from home. And now employers are in a position where they have folks that just started out that are working from home. And it's putting tremendous strains on organizations to say, how can we supervise people? How do we need to change our training? How do we need to change the way we mentor people to really get the best out of everyone, even when they're working from home?
0: Is that assumption that, you know, if we're working from home, we have to earn that? Is that assumption that if we're at home, we're not working? Is that valid? I mean, do we work less when we're at home? My wife and I have had this discussion and we think we're working more.
1: That's a a very good point. Um, the folks that I've interviewed and surveyed are telling me they're working a lot more. Like their billable time has gone through the roof. One, because they're not commuting. So that half hour, yeah. hour they're saving on each end of the day, they're working instead. But a lot of bosses can't get away from this idea that if I don't see you sweating at your desk...
0: You're slacking.
1: Then, yes, exactly, exactly. And so we traditionally, it's the folk, the person who's been at the office who gets there the first and leaves the last is seen as working the hardest. But if that person spends half a day walking around and standing by the coffee machine, well, no, that person is not the most productive. So we really need to change, well, how are we defining the best employee or the most productive employee? It means we need to look at their output, at what are they producing versus how are they getting it done.
0: What are the advantages and disadvantages of not being around your your uh, cohorts, your, your peers at work? Because, you know, as you mentioned, sometimes it can be a distraction, but other times it's needed for mental health, brainstorming, that sort of thing.
1: Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, some of the pros are certainly you can do more focused work. A lot of people tell me that when I'm at home, I can shut the door and get things done. Now, that really depends on your family situation, your life situation. Other people will tell me I have three kids and two dogs and a cat at home and I can't get anything done. So it really is where do you get the most focus work done, either at the office or at home. But um, a lot of people are telling you that they can better balance their multiple priorities. So, you know, if they have kids that are not in school right now or don't have child care, that allows them to have the flexibility to arrange their work and personal life a bit better. But one of the big drawbacks are those spontaneous brainstorming types of conversations where, you know, Client calls, there's a major issue, everyone goes in a boardroom or in someone's office, rolls up their sleeves and solves a problem. Or those spontaneous conversations that you realize your colleague and you are working on something very similar, and you all of of a sudden realize, wow, that's a great project, a great idea for a new product or something. So I think those spontaneous moments, one, just in terms of productivity are lost, but also those moments where you have those very authentic uh, connections with people are lost. And, you know, my research suggests that being on Zoom, while it can be very isolating because we're all working from home, allowing our personal life to come in on camera kind of gets rid of a little bit of that isolation, kind of makes up for those human authentic connections that we miss. That we're really missing from not being able to lunch, have lunch with our colleagues, for instance.
0: And 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 I will warn you, in case you hear a dog barking, you know exactly <laughs> what we're talking about here. Uh, but people do uh, appreciate that. And we have seen that, whether, you know, and you're in the media like I am, you're watching uh, your peers on TV and all of a sudden their dog walks through or their cat or whatever. Or, you know, someone's on a Zoom call and there's a toilet flushing. or or what have you, how do we make sure we don't become disconnected? Because, again, being around the place of business, being around the mothership, there's a vibe, there's an energy there. Whereas when we all go off in our own little pods, are we losing that same sense of direction? Uh, I don't know if I'm making myself clear here, but are are we losing that team spirit kind of thing?
1: I absolutely agree. This is a major issue, how to create a cohesive work culture. Now, it, if you think about someone who's just starting off in their profession, who's just starting off in their career, for instance, when you started out, you, know, you go into a big organization, you breathe the air, you're, you see it, it's immersive, right? And yeah, now you just if, hang out.
0: You just want to hang out.
1: You just want to feel what does it mean to be a, an accountant or a radio personality or whatever it is that you do. So now how do we replicate that in this environment? I think it's going to be very, very difficult. Okay, I think for sure to make a cohesive work culture exclusively from home is going to be virtually impossible. And that's why many organizations are saying moving forward, we're going to need a hybrid model where we can allow people to work from home two, three days a week. If that's where they can feel they need to be the most productive. But then we need them to come in so that we can actually see each other and get to know each other. So I I absolutely agree with you that it is difficult. Um, But at the same time, we're in a position right now where we can't make that choice. Right, we're we're stuck in this situation. So let's say, what can we find good out of all this? And one of the good that I'm finding in my research is when people are working from home, we have to see them for who they really are. We have to see them for the person with the three children, for the person with such and such uh, personal responsibility. They're not just the individual in the in the cubicle beside me. And so your your colleagues' personal lives, seeing them as a whole, well-rounded person becomes necessary. It also means that we don't evaluate people for how they present themselves necessarily. Now, this is, I'm not saying we should all be showing up at the office in our band t-shirt and our pajama pants. Mm. But what I'm saying is when you show up on camera and you're just wearing whatever it is that you're, you know, you're more leisure wear, or you're just wearing a polo shirt, my re- research is suggesting that people are focusing on what the person on the other side of the call is saying less than what they're wearing. And so this provides an opportunity for us to maybe say, well, does it really matter? I mean, I used to, I'm a CPA, I'm an accountant. You had to wear this fancy suit. You had to have the right briefcase. You had to present in a certain way. But mm-hmm. so at the end of the day, I want the accountant that can give me the best tax advice. That's what really matters. And so if we can find a way to say, let's change what our, our definition of the good employee, the definition of what it means to be a professional, then maybe that's some pauses that can come out of this. But to come back to your question, absolutely. Having some type of cohesive work uh, culture is, is difficult in this environment.
0: Is it more difficult to evaluate performance working this way?
1: Oh, absolutely. Or is it just different? Well, look, if, if I'm evaluating someone based on how many hours they put in, First of all, it's it's very difficult to do, to evaluate whether someone is reporting their hours truthfully. Let's be honest, you know. uh, If you're reporting that you worked 40 hours this week, I have no idea. But maybe it doesn't really matter, right? It doesn't matter to me if you did it in 35 hours, you did it in 45 hours, as long as the product is excellent. So we have to start thinking about what is it that we're hiring employees for in the first place. If the employee is is charged with putting together a project, Let's look at how good that end product is. And you know what the other thing is? This employee, if they're working from home, they're not going to have the same access to their bosses to help them along the way. They're not going to have the same access to their colleagues. They're going to have to think on their feet. So maybe what it means to be a good employee is also someone who's very versatile, who's flexible, who might be a bit entrepreneurial and can come up with their own solutions. So I do think the way we evaluate people is going to have to take into account the challenges that we're having from working from home.
0: What sort of discussions do you think are going on right now in the boardrooms and the ivory towers? Because this is obviously a completely different world. It's completely different the way any company would do business. What sort of wh- what do you think they're talking about in boardrooms about life post-COVID-19?
1: Well, I, for one, I think they're saying, how can we reduce our real estate footprint and save some money on rent? I, I would not want to be a commercial real estate owner right now because the folks that I'm talking to are saying, well, if we don't have to have 100% of our employees in, I don't need to have that same major footprint on Bay Street or downtown Montreal or wherever, wherever I am. So I think that's number one. Number two is saying, how can we align people's work schedules that we make sure that they're getting the flexibility they need while they are being as responsive to clients. Because look, on the one hand, working from home, sure, it allows you to be flexible and arrange your personal and work life. But if the client calls and you're never available, that's a real problem. So I think coming up with what are the acceptable parameters for scheduling is very important and expectations. You know, people are telling me that, you know, it's COVID, we're understanding maybe sometimes people miss deadlines, deadlines are becoming more flexible. And Okay, sure, that's important. You know, we have to people have all these competing priorities. But at the end of the day, if we're not getting client deliverables done online, then that's a big problem. So I think defining how people work and what is an acceptable standard of performance, uh, I think boardrooms are really dealing with right now.
0: Okay, let's talk about the employee, the worker, the person who is, uh, you know, the people who are actually involved in the operational, day-to-day operation of the company and are working from home. What should their protocol be? I I heard uh, anecdotally a friend talking about how it got to the point where because they were working from home, they were being accessed all the time. So they would actually put their out-of-office message on at 5 o'clock and say, I'm out uh you know which sort of defeats the purpose of being accessible all the time and working from home and such so if you are and perhaps one of those people who you know doesn't need to be supervised works plenty hard on their own what should the protocol be for them so they don't go nuts so that they uh have a healthy uh, uh work environment and 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 can balance all of this out of the same building
1: Oh, 100%. I mean, if your laptop is always an arm's length away, you're never going to disconnect. And that's, and that's not any better, right? So I think if people set consistent office hours, that's good for themselves because they're recreating some of those routines that are helpful, you know, traditionally and also gives allows other people to set an expectation for when they're going to be available. Because one of the major things right now is communication. If you're not going to be working 9 to 5, well, when are you going to be working? Is it going to be 7 to 3? Is it going to be 8 to 12? And then you continue working after later in the evening? That's fine, as long as people know when to when to access you. And um, I think I think that's where the problem happens, where someone sort of disappears. And then their colleagues say, well, you know, I I can't access this person. But certainly for someone who doesn't require supervision, someone who's working at a company for a number of years, they know what they're supposed to be doing, they're a good performer, then let's let them take advantage and set some of their own rules. Look, Listen, one of the big things about going to work if you you get up in the morning and traditionally you you put on your clothes and you go to work and there's this whole revving up of the day you listen to a podcast you listen to your radio show or or another on your on a radio show on this station and you get ready for the day and you get into work mode but now you never get in or out of work mode you're always in this hybrid messy messy state and I think it's good for people's mental health and their just their well-being to set Firm beginning and ends the day. It's just good for everyone.
0: Good point. What do you think? As here we are into twenty-two weeks of this, what have we learned from COVID nineteen?
1: Well, I, I think what we've learned is that the way we traditionally work is unnecessarily burdensome and, and unnecessarily inflexible. You know, when I was in the firm, you had to be there at a certain time, and you really never knew when you were going to leave. You knew when you got there, but you never knew when you were going to leave. And is, it really, is that really good for anyone if you're just there for FaceTime? I don't think so. I think that if we start evaluating people's work product rather than their process, then we're starting to say, well, what value does this employee bring to the organization? And the employee themselves can say, well, what if, what is my value proposition as well? Um, and I think also from COVID, from what my research is suggesting, is that we should be looking at what people bring to the table we should be looking at their expertise their credibility their ideas and it doesn't really matter if they're doing it with if they're managing to do it and they have three children at home or however they're dressed it doesn't matter maybe we can stop focusing on folks self-presentation and instead focus on what it is that their competence their knowledge and expertise
0: how do you think this is going to look long-term what do you think what life will be like one year from now
1: well I certainly hope we have a, a vaccine and we're all able to travel and be together again. Mm. But uh, I don't—I really don't believe we're going to all continue working from home forever. I don't think it's tenable. Uh, I think that some type of hybrid model will emerge where we start questioning, do I really need to travel to a client site? Do I really need to travel to a business conference? I think we're going to be much more flexible in terms of uh, using virtual meetings and things like that. Unfortunately, though, because I can think of my own experience, a lot of uh, conferences I mix, missed out this summer, didn't get a chance to meet people. But I think we're going to, one, think twice about business travel, and, but I do think in the long term, we will all be working from home at least a part of the time. One, because that allows us to have better work-life balance, but two, because I think it allows employers to be a bit more economical on their on some of their you know infrastructure. Now, hopefully, employers will pass on some of that to their employees right? If employees now all of a sudden have to have their own work from home office and have to have high speed internet and things like that, that employers will pass on some of that to compensate their employees for that.
0: We have certainly seen how this has been uh, devastating to some businesses, including the hospitality industry and such. Are there opportunities coming out of the other end of this?
1: Well, there's opportunities for us to think, are there things we really don't want to get rid of? You know, maybe, maybe, you know, Business travel kind of sometimes has a bad name. You know, you think of these buffets that nobody wants to eat at, and conferences that, that are some that feel like uh, unpleasant to attend. But maybe if we don't need so many of these op- of these things, we're going to be more strategic. You know, if I was in the hospitality industry, I think I'd say, well, "What is my real value proposition? What is it that?" people love about coming to my conference or coming to my hotel or coming to my destination and so we're going to rethink what these experiences are and what people are looking for I think a lot of things have come routine you know like when you go you're going to get into a plane and you go visit this conference every year or that trade show every year and maybe rethinking do I really need this maybe smaller events local events are more you have me better better return on my investment and so I think we're going to I think uh, we're going to rethink a lot of this moving about the planet that we're doing.
0: I've often said that uh, this is the first crisis of a privileged generation. Uh, Do you think (laughs) this will result in us readjusting our priorities? You said living smaller. Uh, At the end of the day, what was fashionable pre-COVID-19? Is it fashionable post-COVID-19?
1: Oh, uh, 100%. I mean, if you think about... Go, you used to have the flexibility to leave your home every day, and you could eat out three times a day if you wanted to. You could meet your meet friends, meet people from around the world. We're absolutely spending more time at home, spending more time with our family, reevaluating our priorities. Those things have all changed. Now, listen, it's for some people it's been very, very difficult to balance work and home, and every uh, you know, both parents and their children, everybody's working out of the home, but at the same time, yes. We've got the chance to spend a lot more time together. I know certainly myself, I spent a lot more time locally getting to see like the walking trails and the different attractions in my neighborhood that maybe Mm -hmm. this summer I may have gone abroad. So we're going to, this is an opportunity for us to look locally, reconsider what's important, and then think going forward, how can we maintain some of these habits for sure?
0: Erica Pimentel has been with us, Ph.D. candidate in accounting, Concordia public scholar, Concordia University, talking about how the COVID-19 pandemic has changed how we work and what that will look like in the future. Erica, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. By the way, her uh, column is in the conversation. Thank you uh, very much for joining us, Erica, and be well.
1: Thank you. Have a nice day.
0: The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900-CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast, or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.